Please do join me in once again taking out your Bibles and turning to Philippians chapter 4. As we turn to God's Word, let's return to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts to know you, to know Jesus, to know the gospel, to know the power of his uh, resurrection. And Father, be pleased to strengthen our weak knees and weak hands as we take up our cross and follow him. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin just by reading the text that we'll be considering for the next six weeks. Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Which commands or commandments do you find the most difficult to obey? Now, Philippians 4, 4 through 7, uh, there are several exhortations, several commands. Uh, in fact, these four verses may be the most memorized and most meditated upon verses uh, in, in at least the New Testament. Um, you know, I was, uh, my sister gave me uh, her Bible, one of her Bibles years ago, and I was just looking at it the other day, and at the top of this section, she wrote four, colon, four through seven, and everything was underlined. I know that's a passage of scripture that my sister goes to often in view of the challenging circumstances she's had in her life, and I know that many of us have memorized those verses, Philippians 4, four through seven. Now, these should provide 
the most comfort, shouldn't they? I mean, a call to rejoice, but yet at times it seems that they appear to bring more distress. Now, does being called to rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say rejoice, seem impossible? Does being told, do not be anxious about anything, often seem to have the opposite effect? Have you been encouraged to know that peace is available, only to become discouraged when you can't seem to find it? Well, if you've answered yes to any or all of those questions, I've got some good news for you. Actually, God has some good news for you. For the next six weeks, we're going to unpack and explore both the content and the context of these four well-known and well-loved verses in what I'm calling peace under pressure. You see, living in a sinful and fallen world means living with all kinds of pressure, pressure from both the inside and pressure from the outside. But in the midst of pressure, in the midst of being under pressure, the God of peace gives the peace of God to his people. Remember the church in Philippi. When we were going through Acts, we saw it in Acts 16. It's Paul's second missionary journey. It's the man from Macedonia that calls Paul over to Europe. Paul ends up with his missionary traveling band in Europe. And we, we saw in our study of Acts, we saw three surprising conversions in Philippi. We saw a businesswoman, Lydia. We saw a slave girl. And we saw a civil servant, the the jailer who came to faith in Christ. Paul had an active ministry in Philippi. And just like he does with most of the churches he helped, he established, he, he writes back to them if he can't get there in person. Now, most likely, Paul writes this letter from his imprisonment in Rome toward the end of his life, uh, around 61, 62 A.D. It's a typical letter. He's got greetings. Um, He opens up with thanksgivings and prayer. Uh, From chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 30, he expounds upon the truth of the gospel. He first looks at his relationship to the gospel, and then he looks at the relationship of the Philippians to the gospel. And after that, uh, all of chapter 3, he's he's going to write about truth against error, that there's danger both from the outside, from pagan persecution, but also danger from the inside. Danger that's in the form of both legalism and in license. And Paul wants to know, he wants the church to know that they're both dangerous, threats from the outside as well as threats from the inside. And then here, beginning in chapter 4, are exhortations. And then beginning in verse 10, he wraps it up with just an outpouring of thanks and declaring how he has learned to be content, he's well supplied, and then he ends up with those final greetings. Now, what's the theme of, of Philippians? I remember years ago, walking to the Naval ROTC building uh, at the, on campus, and I passed by our Marine officer instructor, this tough, 
Marine. And, and I knew he was a believer, and he said, where are you, he- where are you heading, Ms. Midshipman Vesey? And I said, well, sir, I'm going to lead a Bible study. Oh, really, what are you studying? Philippians. Oh, you're going to talk about joy. Wow, Major Dossett. Okay, that's great. That actually started a great relationship with Major Dossett. So what is the theme of Galatians? Well, he was right. There's joy. Forms of joy appear 20 times in this short letter. Four chapters, 104 verses. And yet, I'm going to call it joy in the gospel because of the gospel. Joy in the gospel because of the gospel. You see, there are nine references, count them, nine to the gospel. And if my mathematical ability was correct late yesterday, this is the highest concentration of the word gospel in all of scripture in one book. 104 verses, the gospel, nine times. I mean, is it any surprise? Remember when we were in Acts, Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul writes, but I do not, cons- I do not account my life of any value now as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the ministry Paul was given Why did he meet Jesus? What was his calling in life? He continues to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what Paul is doing everywhere, and we certainly see it here in the letter to the Philippians. Well, today we're going to focus our attention, as I said, on verses 1 through 3. Being together and staying together for the gospel involves, among other things, Standing firm, agreeing, and helping in the Lord. So for those of you that take notes, there's a little bit of a change in the outline. They're basically the same, but standing firm in the Lord, agreeing in the Lord, and helping one another in the Lord. Notice verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. It's a call to everyone, to everyone in the church. Stand firm. And, and verse 1 can be seen as a conclusion to what has been previously said or an introduction to what will be said. Uh, therefore, it's a look back. In view of what I've already said, Paul says, stand firm. Back in chapter 3, verse 2, look out for the dogs. That's how he characterized people that mess with the gospel of free salvation in Christ alone. He calls them dogs. Watch out for the dogs. He says later in that chapter, join in imitating me. Because there are enemies of the cross. He, toward the end of chapter 3, is really promoting the idea of the already and the not yet. He's talking about our citizenship now is in heaven. And we wait now for a Savior to come from heaven. Stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. And thus is a look ahead. In view of the challenges that lay ahead, stand firm. Again, there's pressure from the outside in terms of persecution. There's there's pressure from the inside that, as we will see, can lead to division. Listen 
to how this is an echo of chapter 1, verse 27, which we read earlier. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are, what? Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Notice in this verse Paul's great affection for the church, for God's people. Jeremiah, did you all see that? Jeremiah, uh, verse, uh, chapter 32, what we read, the Lord talks about with all my heart and with all my soul. There's an affection that God has for his people. Is it no doubt that a pastor, that an evangelist is also going to have affection for God's people? He loves them. I mean, it's, it's there whom I love and my beloved translated woodenly, literally, you're going to see beloved, beloved, kind of a beloved sandwich. He loves them. They are his joy. He even speaks of them being his crowd, and most likely this is an anticipation of kind of uh, what is to the future that Paul will be crowned. Again, you don't crown yourself. He's being crowned. Standing firm. Why? Why stand firm? Well, because there are enemies of the gospel. Years ago when we looked at uh, Ephesians chapter 6, don't just do something, stand there fighting the good fight of the faith. The The challenge was to stand. To stand. Why? Because there's enemies. There's going to be things that are going to assault you. So stand. Stand together. How? How stand? In the Lord. In the Lord. You see, if it didn't say in the Lord, the reader, the church member in Philippi might just think, you know, I got a man up. I got a woman up. I got to just gird, get my strength and stand. Stand how? In the Lord. Stand where? Where's your standing? In the Lord. So Paul calls everyone in the church to stand firm in the Lord. But now he will turn his attention to two particular people in the church and call both of them to agree in the Lord. Listen again to verse 2. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. What keeps you all up at night? What is one of the major things you're thinking about in the middle of the night if you can't sleep? I long for the day. Maybe it's just a matter of getting older, but I long for the day of, you know, sleeping until the sun rises or sleeping till the alarm goes off. But if you're like me, there are times in the middle of the night when you can't sleep. And what are you thinking about? Is it finances? Could be. You know, there's more month and less money. Could it be health? 
you know, if it's, money, if it's finances, you just got to work harder, right? Earn more money. And if it's health, maybe just find the right person to help diagnose the problem and find the treatment, find the medication. But I'd be venture to guess that what's most common that keeps all of us up in the middle of the night, can't sleep, it's a source of stress, anxiety, worry, and fear, is human relationships. Relationships with people. You know, rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. What's the context of that? Human relationships. Do finances cause anxiety? Probably. Health? Certainly. How about human relationships? Husband, wife, parent, child, friend, friend, church member, church member. Oh, you bet. You bet. This call to rejoice and not be anxious that we will see comes on the heels of what? Trouble in a relationship. Paul continues that affectionate, warm, tender approach. He's pastoral. He, he pleads rather than commands. He, he addresses each woman by name. Paul is not choosing sides. He's not pointing out one against the other. He's addressing both of them by name. He's entreating them. He's pleading with them. Well, what's the problem? They've been told to agree in the Lord. Well, there's got to be a problem. What is the difficulty? What is the dispute? What is the disagreement? Whatever it is, they are no longer, as it were, side by side. They are at odds. You know, the source of the tension is not revealed. Uh, Paul is a very tactful pastor. He gives no details. He just implores, he begs, he pleads that these two women, both you and you, agree in the Lord. Because you see, what is probably happening is there's some, some differences of opinion that are getting in the way of alignment and agreement with the essentials. Some of you... I think, have a copy of the ESV Study Bible. It's been around for, what, now over 10 years. I think it's a helpful study Bible, a helpful reference. And I was looking in the back at some theological notes under a heading called Biblical Doctrine and Overview. And it says this, The ability to discern the relative importance of theological beliefs is vital for effective Christian life and ministry. The relative importance of theological issues can fall within four categories. Absolutes, convictions, opinions, that is less clear issues, and questions, that is currently unsettled issues. Well, we don't know what the source of disagreement, we don't know what it was. But it was significant enough for Paul to single out these two women by name. And say, you know, you need to agree in the Lord. Are these questions that you're disagreeing over? Live with it. Is this opinions? 
live with it. it. Is this convictions? I mean, is is um, Yodia kind of Baptist and Syntyche's Presbyterian um, convictions? Or are they absolutes? Are they core issues of the gospel? You know, in my ministry through the years, decades, when you run into folks who are absolute about everything and absolutely certain about everything, difficulty in relationships are, are sure to follow. The solution to agree in the Lord. Once again, the qualifier in the Lord, it's to agree, literally, to think the same things. It's the case of putting the truth of chapter 2 into practice. You see, those who are united to Christ should share in the, the mind or attitude of Christ. Did you hear the introduction and conclusion of our confession of sin? It was Philippians 2. Have this same mind that was in Christ Jesus. That's the answer. That's the call. And, and so here is a specific case of the teaching of chapter 2 to be put to practice. The late J.A. Matir, an Old Testament uh, theologian, scholar, well-known for his commentary on Isaiah, ends up doing a commentary on Philippians for the Bible Speaks Today series. And he says this, Where there is agreement as to what the gospel is and what ought to be done with it, there is no room for personal disagreement. He goes on to say, to agree on the gospel is the most fundamental form of unity. It involves a unity of mind and heart as to the doctrines and personal experiences of salvation. Agreeing in the Lord. I want to provide two illustrations of that. One from four centuries ago and the other from four days ago. John Wesley, George Whitfield, two great preachers, leaders in the 18th century revival in England and in the colonies. George Whitfield died in 1770. Wesley followed in 1791. And you know that there were disagreements. John Wesley understood some things different than George Whitfield. Whitfield understood some things differently than then Wesley, um, and I had heard this story, so I, I tracked it down. Um, I've got it before me because I didn't want to mess it up. So after um, Whitfield died, Wesley was timidly approached by one of the godly band of Christian sisters who had been brought under his influence and who had loved both Whitfield and Wesley. Dear Mr. Wesley, May I ask you a question? Yes, of course, madame, madam, excuse me, by all means. But, dear Mr. Wesley, I am very much afraid of what the answer will be. Well, madam, let me hear your question and then you will know my reply. At last, after not a, a little hesitation, the inquirer trembly asked, Dear Mr. Wesley, do you expect to see dear Mr. Whitfield in heaven? A lengthy pause followed, after which John Wesley replied with great seriousness. No, madam. His inquirer at once exclaimed, Ah, 
I was afraid you would say so. To which John Wesley added with intense earnestness, quote, do not understand me, madam. George Whitfield was so bright a star in the firmament of God's glory and will stand so near the throne that one like me who am less than the least will never catch a glimpse of him. What humility. What agreement in the Lord. And to show Whitfield's thoughts and admiration for Wesley earlier, Whitfield said this about, Mr. about Wesley. The good Mr. John Wesley has done in America... The good that Mr. John Wesley has done in America is inexpressible. His name is very precious among the people, and he has laid a foundation that I hope neither men nor devils will ever be able to shake it. Isn't that beautiful? Some of us follow in the legacy, as it were, of Wesley, some of us in Whitfield. But what humility among these two leaders in the church. So that was four centuries ago. Let me, let me tell you about four days ago. Four days ago, I was in Louisville, Kentucky on Thursday morning, meeting with two other college classmates and friends. One's a Baptist pastor in Portland, Oregon, and the other is a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. In fact, that friend is the co-editor of this massive volume called Believer's Baptism, Sign of the New Covenant in Christ. So there was one Presbyterian and two Baptists together for an hour and a half, looking back over three decades, enjoying learning what God is doing in our lives now and looking forward in hope to the future. We were, as it were, together for the gospel. Do we have different views on things? Absolutely. But there was a unity of heart and a friendship that over three decades is still there. In fact, where were we? We were in Louisville where there's together for the gospel. One final time after 16 years, the two out of the four men that started it, one, a member of our denomination, Ligon Duncan, the other, a Southern Baptist, Mark Dever, together for the gospel. 10,000 pastors mainly, but others singing Songs like, yet not I, but Christ in me. He will hold me fast. His mercy is more. Together for the gospel, agreeing in the Lord. Despite disagreements and despite differences over secondary matters, it is possible to agree in the Lord. I'm so thankful that Michael and Sean and me can agree in the Lord. Now, Paul's going to ask a third party to help resolve the disagreement, to help relieve the tension and help repair the relationship that is at odds. Because sometimes you need an outside party to help. I'm so thankful for Presbyterianism. I'm so thankful for the accountability and the connectional nature of our churches and presbyteries and denomination. We can help one another, and that's what's happening. Listen to verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, 
help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There was a call to the whole church. There was a call to two specific women. And now there's a call to an unnamed person. Help. Help. Uh, You know, I immediately, when I'm reading this, I think of this ad that I hear on the radio. I see occasionally on TV. Help. Plumbing. Heating. Right? Air conditioning. Drains. Help is needed, and Paul knows where to find it. In fact, last Sunday afternoon, this church building needed help with plumbing. It was bad. And help came, the Calvary came early Monday morning. We needed help. Help came. These women need help. And Paul is confident that help can be provided. Who, who is this true companion? Well, there's various possibilities. Uh, could it be Epaphroditus who brings the letter to them? Maybe. Some people think it's Luke. There's some views that even say this particular Greek name is a person's name, a man's name. But there's no evidence that that was even a name in all of the first century. I think it's important that it, it remains unknown who this helper was but Paul had the confidence that he could help and who are these women notice again how Paul describes them they're women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel who started the church in Philippi Paul yes Lydia yes Most likely, these women were in the early days of the church, and and they had influence. They were people of influence in the church. Dare I say, they provided some leadership in this church in Philippi. Because what Paul has not subordinated them to behind him, he's saying they're side by side. They are co-heirs with Christ. They They are equal gospel partners with me what a church what a ministry these women are courageous fellow workers of Paul he's thankful for their partnership in the gospel and he is distressed that something has gotten between them Paul's got a partnership in the gospel with the Philippian church. And there is a partnership within the church. They're together for the gospel, aren't they? Listen to this. Clement, fellow workers. And who are these people? Paul's got them on a roster. Actually, he he doesn't have them on a roster, but God has them on a roster. The, The book of life, right? Remember the time in Luke where Jesus sends out the 72 and they come back and they are excited, giving high fives to each other. Look what we've done, Jesus. The spirits have been subjected to us. Well, in Luke 10, 20, Jesus says this. Talk about reigning in one sense on a parade. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
that's how Paul describes these known and unknown people. Names that are in the book of life that will be revealed at the last day. You know, it's interesting. Um, Paul doesn't tell Yodia and Syntyche, hey, go get help. He tells someone to provide help. Do you have the relationships with one another that you can go and offer help? Is somebody going to receive the help? Do they see you as a partner in the gospel? Do they see you as a co-worker? Do they see you united in Christ? If that's the case, man, your offer of help is going to be received. There are times when we have to ask for help, hard as it may be, but there are times when we've just got to go give help. But it's got to be done from not a position of superiority, not a position of having all the answers, not a position of certainty, but with someone who has the same mind of Christ, gentle, lowly. So here in these verses, Paul entreats the members of the Philippian church to stand united in the Lord for the sake of the gospel, to stand together for the gospel. Let's return to where we began the subject of commands and commandments that you find hard to obey. Well, why are they hard to obey? Why are they so difficult? Why do they border on impossible? Here's why. Because they involve an attitude of the heart. What does Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount but contrast Outward action with inward attitude. When Samuel, the prophet Samuel, learned from, this is what Samuel learned when looking for a new king among the sons of Jesse. We read in 1 Samuel, for the, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So if that's our problem, if our problem is that obedience involves the heart and the attitude of the heart, what do we need? What, what, what do we need? Do we need sharp minds? Do we need precise words? Do we need strong hands? Do we need action to just white knuckle our obedience to grip the steering wheel of our life so hard that we will just force it to go where it's supposed to go. Is that what we need? A sharp mind? Strong hands? You see, those are really good components of outward obedience. But what we need is a new heart. And if we have a new heart, what we need is a change of heart. You see, sharp minds and strong hands can easily do outward obedience. 
Why? Because there's no need for Jesus. There's no need for his presence. There's no need for his power. It's just a matter of your own self-generated willpower. What do we need? A new heart, a change of heart, and if we have, by God's grace, a new heart, what do we need more than anything? To maintain a soft heart. A soft and humble heart before the Lord and before one another is what's really needed to obey God. You see, obedience is not only hard, I would say it's impossible apart from a personal day-to-day, moment-by-moment, branch-connected-to-the-vine communion with Jesus Christ. So my friends, where do we find what we need? Of course, we find it in Jesus Christ and in his gospel. May God be pleased to give us what we need. From the youngest to the oldest, everyone here, a heart attitude that reflects the heart of Jesus Christ and allows us to agree in the Lord That we would be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. My friends, our God has made us one. Our hearts are united because they are hearts united to Christ by faith. May God be pleased to give us his peace under pressure, the pressure of our varied circumstances. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we have just read, for what we have heard, that we have been called to stand firm in the Lord. We've been called to agree in the Lord. We've been called to help one another in the Lord. O Father, be pleased to work in us that which displays your glory amongst us and to the watching world who's desperate to know the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.